you know, as we were singing, um, one of the overwhelming thoughts that, that just kind of captured my, my heart and my mind was just to ask the question before we begin, why we're here. Why are you here? Are you here because this seems like a good thing to do? Seems like the right thing to do. Maybe you're here because this is what you've always done, right? Uh, since I was a little boy, I've been going to church, and that's just what I do on Sunday mornings. I go to church. But I wonder how many of us really think that this, what we're doing here, stands apart from everything else. That it's really unique. That there's something to Christianity that sets it apart from every religion, every faith, every practice, every ritual that we could be doing. Whether that be on Friday day or Saturday evening or, or you name it, you know. What sets this apart? Do you know that? Do you believe that? And does that motivate you? Does that motivate why you're here? Friends, Christianity is, is incomparable. It's incompatible with every other religion, every other practice. The Christian faith is not pluralistic, right? It's not just one of many ways that we could use to get to God. It sets itself apart. And you can't take it and mix and match in some syncretistic type of of just random stone stew where you could just pile on this that I like and pile on that to kind of create my own spirituality and live the way I please. It's not something that you can just add on to your life. You're basically full, basically complete, basically content life just to, to provide that extra little something that you need when, when, when times are hard or when things are strange or I don't really know what to do. It's more than that. The gospel is not an inclusive message. Jesus was clear when he says that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way. It's, in, it's exclusive because it's built upon an, op, an ultimate and absolute truth that cannot be minimized. It cannot be adapted. It cannot be compromised. It's non-negotiable. It doesn't matter what the world tells you. It doesn't matter that the world tells you that God loves and saves universally. Or how there's no such thing as absolute truth. Which is always a funny statement to me, because how could they be absolutely sure that that is true? Right? It's not something that you add to your life. To place Jesus alongside the other idols that clamor for the affections of your heart. It doesn't matter how much the world tells you that you can earn your salvation through one of any means of works-based salvation. Any works-based religion. Or that form or truth don't matter. Only a faithful expression of your own spirituality. No matter what the world tells you, it's not true. Because there's one God who speaks. There's one God who creates. There's one God that saves. Who redeems. And He has made Himself and His ways known so that we might know Him as He is. Not as how we want Him to be. Christianity is not like any other religion. It's not pluralistic. 
It's not syncretistic. It's not compatible. It's not inclusive. It's not universal. And it's non-negotiable. It's not like any other religion because the gospel is not like any other message. Because Jesus is not like any other Savior or any other Lord. It's not like any other religion because it's not about what you do, but about what Jesus has already done. This morning as we look at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, which is page 837 in the Bibles there in the chairs, what we are going to see in our time together is that Jesus didn't come to fit into the religion of the day. He came to redefine it. He came to recreate it. He came to give us an understanding of what true faith in God looks like. He came to make all things new. And all forms that are not challenged or changed or focused on Him, He makes obsolete. Jesus really is making all things new. So let's pray together. And then we'll read. Father God, I I pray that whatever notions of, of, of personal piety or, um, or distractions that we have right now because there are other gods, other idols just warring for our souls right now, that we would focus our attention on the truth of your word and that you would give us eyes to see who Jesus is. And that we would recognize that Christianity is not like anything else. What Jesus is preaching is a new faith. It's an exclusive faith. It's an authoritative faith. And it is a joyful, joyful faith. So Lord, I pray for clarity of mind and the clarity of speech to be able to articulate Your Word faithfully. And I pray that the power of Your Spirit would be at work in this place to change hearts and lives, to draw us to Your Son. That's in His name we pray. Amen. Again, that's Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, and page 837 in the Bibles there. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Jesus, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. As Jesus is here combating the religious traditions of the day, the first truth that we see is that he is revealing a new faith. This is a new faith. It's a new understanding. Now, we're going to take a step back. Remember what Mark's all about. Mark is all about the authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died and was raised so that sinners might be saved and they might become followers of Him. I've said it time and time again, but I'll say Mark is all about this. Who Jesus is, 
why he came, and what it means to follow him. Right? And so as we study this passage today, let's not forget that this is just one event in a whole message that preaches the authority, the truth of who Jesus is. Right? We don't want to strip this out and just kind of look at it on its own. Mark is giving an historical account of the person and work of Christ. He came and by his authority, as the Son of God, he is challenging the old guard. He's challenging the old ways. And he's in the process of making things new. And Mark is saying here that faith in something is not enough. Saving faith in Jesus Christ alone is what is necessary. This uh, question about fasting, it takes place either during or shortly after Jesus' feast with Levi and the, the tax collector and his sinner posse. Remember, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, right? Uh, Jesus had been there in Capernaum and met up with Levi, uh, this, this wretched tax collector, the vilest of the vile to all the people there. And, and he says, hey, come and follow me. The dude gets up, takes him to his house, and they're having this, this dinner, Right? And there are Pharisees there, and there are common people there, and there are these wretched, wicked, worst of the worst kind of sinners there. It's this hodgepodge of crazy people all gathered together around Jesus, and they're just, they're just eating. They're, they're picking out. You know, it's great. It's a feast. This is a good time. And uh, Mark, as well as Matthew, in their account of this passage, they give a little wiggle room as to when, but if you look at Luke's account, it makes it seem like this question is asked during that meal. It happens while they're there. So here they are at Levi's house. They're gathered around. Some people are fasting, but you've got these disciples of John, and you've got these Pharisees who are fasting. They're not eating, right? They're abstaining from food for the purpose of devotion to God. That's what they're doing. And so the people know this. They recognize this. I mean, here are the religious people of the day, these Pharisees, these John's disciples. That's John the Baptist, John. Uh, his disciples are fasting, but, but Jesus is not fasting. And so they begin to question, and they decide to ask him, you know, if, if all the pious and the righteous and devoted religious people of the day are fasting, then why isn't Jesus fasting? I mean, this is the guy that... It came into our synagogue, into our religious place, and he, he taught with such authority. He showed himself to be a spiritual leader. He's the one that professed to have the authority to forgive sins. He's healing people. He's doing all this stuff. But why is he not practicing the same things that everybody else is practicing? All the faithful people are doing this, but he's not. Why is that? Jesus' audience couldn't rectify who Jesus proclaimed to be with this devout religious practice of the day. It seemed like his life was inconsistent, that he was somehow being unspiritual or irreligious. This crowd, which was comprised of average Jews, but also scribes and Pharisees, and even John's disciples, were there. And they couldn't get how Jesus, who showed all these signs of being God's promised Messiah, would not conform to the religious practices of the day. They, they just couldn't understand it. I mean, this is, these are the disciples of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. Remember him from chapter 1? The guy that says, I'm not worthy to, to stoop down to untie the sandals of Jesus? The one who says, 
I should be baptized by you, not baptize you. The one who looked upon Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That John the Baptist. And here his disciples are gathered together and they're doubting Jesus. Because he's not doing what they think he ought to do. He's not doing all the external religious practices. And so the crowd begins to question him outright. We've seen already in a progression of, of Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 2 of this uh, confrontation, this conflict with Jesus. First it happened in verses 1 through 12 where the scribes began to question Jesus in their hearts. And then in verses 13 through 17, we see that they start to question Jesus' disciples. And now here in this passage we have the crowd which is comprised of all these folks, just common people, but also scribes and even John's disciples, and they're questioning Jesus directly. You see this escalation that's happening here? And by the end of the passage next week, there's some people that are actually going to be plotting to kill him. And this is over the fact that Jesus isn't following the religious practices of the day. They question him over this issue of fasting. They asked, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Which here I find it kind of interesting that they, they frame the question in a way not to point the finger directly at Jesus, but to point the finger directly at Jesus. You know, it's like, okay, John and his disciples are fasting and all the Pharisees, including their disciples, are fasting, but you and your disciples do not fast. See, they're pointing the finger at Jesus, but they're, not, they're kind of still afraid to. They're afraid to accuse him directly. Fasting, as I said, was a spiritual discipline that, where people abstain from food primarily, and they incorporate that with prayer as, in order to devote themselves to God. It's a means of seeking him. And originally it was a good thing. It was this expression of their devotion, their loyalty to God. But the form became quickly became this means of trying to barter or buy God's favor. Well, if I fast and I pray, then God will give me what I want. He'll give me what I'm praying for. And it becomes works-based at that point. Fasting wasn't a requirement. There was only one fast that was required in the Old Testament, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And on that one day, that one day of the year, they would get together and they would fast as a is a physical symbol of their mourning and lamentation and sorrow for their sin. This was a, a, a negative, is a weeping, you know, a, a soul's weeping, and they wanted a physical expression of their sorrow over their sin, and so they fasted regularly. It was only later that more things were added to it. Some people, they fasted in order to seek the will of God. Sometimes they fasted because they were lamenting national tragedies like war or famines or plagues. Sometimes they did it for self-imposed personal reasons. But somewhere along the way, at least by the time you get to Isaiah 58, the people practice fasting regularly as a religious ritual in an attempt to buy God's favor, to earn their salvation, to barter with Him so that, they, that He would answer their prayers. It ended up becoming a, a requirement to establish yourself as a religious authority. A good Pharisee fasted twice a week. So if you wanted to be a religious figure, if you wanted to be a spiritual leader to the people around you, you had to fast twice a week. So why is this Jesus not fasting? 
This man who says he has the authority to take away sin. How could he dare say that and not fast? But God is not concerned with our mere actions. He's not concerned. He's concerned really about what that we worship Him in spirit and in truth, that we worship Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. It's not what we do. It's the motivation behind it. Jesus challenge, challenges the heart of these old religious practices in verses 21 and 22 by giving these two short parables. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. He's just saying here, hey, if you take a brand new cloth that hasn't been shrunk yet, hasn't been washed, hasn't been faded, and you cut out a patch that perfectly fits that old garment that you love so much, and you sew it on there, you know what's going to happen? You wash it a few times, and that patch is going to shrink, and it's going to tear it away. And it's going to make a bigger hole than was there in the first place. So you can't add new wine to old wineskins. Why? Because new wine is still fermenting, and old wineskins are brittle. They're hard. They're not malleable. You take this, this new wine, which is still bubbling, still producing gas, and you stick it in a whole old, hard, rough wineskin, and it's got no ability to expand, to stretch, to, to deal with the gas, and so it explodes, and both are destroyed. The faith that Jesus is proclaiming is not like anything else. It's a new cloth. It's new wine. Though it's similar to the old, I mean, a new cloth is still cloth, a new wine is still wine. It's so different that it's incompatible. You cannot bring the two together. You cannot just tie them in. You cannot just add the new to the old. Otherwise, both are destroyed. And so he's challenging these these devout Jews to leave their old religious forms behind. He says that if you want the new, if you want what I'm proclaiming, if you want the kingdom of God that I'm preaching, then it requires new life. It requires a new heart. It requires a new mind. It requires a new strength that only I can provide. You can't just keep what you have before. What you're doing is not enough to save yourself. It's not enough just to have faith. You must have new life that comes from a new faith in Jesus. Faith in Christ is not a new spin on an old and greater truth. Right? It's it's not. Because if it was, then then Jesus would, would just be one way to God. Jesus is not simply one of many ways. Faith is not this patch quilt, right? That as long as you hang on to one of the patches, it doesn't matter which one. It could be Jesus. It could be Judaism. It could be Muhammad. It could be Kali. It could be your own righteous good works. As long as you're hanging on to that one, you're under the blanket of God. Well, no, that's not true. That's not how it works. Jesus is saying you can't tie that patch in. You've got, you need a new garment. Salvation requires new life, and new life requires a new faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
And this leads to the second point. Jesus is not only proclaiming a new faith, he's proclaiming an exclusive faith. What is new is incompatible with the old. The new kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming is exclusive and unique. It is completely different than everything that the people of his time expected. Completely different. And Jesus was systematically redefining their prior expectations. He's challenging their expectations of what God's kingdom looks like. It's not physical, it's spiritual. He's challenging their expectation for God's king. It is not this noble, mighty conqueror, but a humble, suffering servant. He's challenging their expectations of who God's people were. That it's not just these pious Jews, but wretched and vile sinners and even Gentiles are included in the people of God. He challenges their expectations of God's means. That God doesn't just come in power, whether it be military power or spiritual power, to heal and perform signs and wonders, but the means through which God's kingdom is revealed is through preaching of the word. And he challenges God's their understanding of God's religion. It's not by obedience to the law. It's not legalism, but by grace. And Jesus challenges their expectation of God's faith. That we don't earn our way to God because we perform religious practices, because we, but because we live a new life of repentance and faith. Jesus is basically saying, if you want a garment without holes in it, you need a new garment. And if you want new wine, you need new wineskins. New requires new. The old is not the same as new. As Jesus says in, in verse 19, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. They cannot fast because the faith that Jesus is proclaiming is exclusive. And if that's true then you can't simply just add Jesus to your old patterns. You can't just add him to your old religious practices, to your old traditions, to your old culture, to your old habits, whether they be good habits or whether they be sinful habits. The gospel of God that Jesus was proclaiming is a whole package. You can't just take what you want and leave the rest. It doesn't work like that. If you do, you are being syncretistic, right? You're, you're trying to create something out of multiple things. And it's, not, and it's not faithful. Get this. It's not faithful to the old thing or the new thing. It's not faithful to your old religion, to your old tradition, to your old practice, to your old culture, to your old habits. But far worse, it's not faithful to the gospel cannot add Jesus into your life and continue in the same patterns that you always have. It requires a complete change. You have to embrace what is new, and it is exclusive in nature. Are you guys tracking with me here? You good? New requires new, and if, if you just add part of Jesus to your pre-existing condition, it will destroy both your old religion, your old way of life, your old tradition, your old culture, your old sinful habits, and it will destroy the gospel. Do you get that? You can't have it both ways. 
He's calling you away from your former self to a new way, His way. He calls us away from every other allegiance that we might have. And this could be allegiances to good things. It could be our jobs. It could be to, to our families. It could be to our comfort. It could be to our entertainment, to our culture, to our sins. Whatever they are, he calls us away from those things that we find our true identity in. And he says, your identity is now in me. That's where it is. If you want new wine, you have to have new wineskins. New requires new. If you try to hold to old Judaism and Jesus, like some of these folks were trying to do, you will destroy them both. If you're trying to hold to something like Islam or Hinduism or Mormonism and Jesus, then you destroy them both. If you try to hold to your former sinful ways of life and Jesus, you destroy them both. And if you try to hold to earning your own salvation through works and Jesus then you destroy them both. And I'm not, not, I'm not just talking about Roman Catholicism here. Legalism is rampant in every denomination, in every faith there is. It's so easy for us to try to trust in ourselves rather than in Christ. To think that I have to earn my way or keep myself in the grace of God rather than realizing that the grace of God has made me sufficient in Christ because His perfect righteousness is given to me. We do this kind of thing all the time in in our licentiousness, by professing Jesus, but still living in our sin, loving our sin, and we do it in our legalism. Professing Jesus, still living by salvation through works. It doesn't matter what it is. Jesus is calling us away from the old religion, away from the old culture, away from the old tradition, away from the old habits, whether good or bad, to a new life of following Him. That is what this new garment, this new wine thing is all about. Luke adds a significant line in his account of this event. In Luke chapter 5, verse 39, it says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. What does he mean there? He's saying that those who are satisfied with the old, whether it be their old religion, their old culture, their old familiar traditions, and their own sinful habits, will never seek the new. So they're satisfied with the old. Their desires are fulfilled in the old. They love the old. And even if they desire the new in part, it's not enough for them to move away from the old. You see what he's saying here? You cannot have it both ways. Your allegiance is to one thing or the other, and that's it. And if it's for the old thing, then that's what you're going to seek. You will not seek the new. This got me wondering as I was preparing for this message, like... How many things am I holding on to? How many of the old patterns, whether it be my sin, my pride, my self-righteousness, my works, how many of those things am I holding on to rather than letting them go and and my allegiance solely being to Christ? It's convicting because it's so easy for us to do that. 
When Jesus calls, he bids us to come and die. We die to the old to live for the new. And Jesus can do this because he's God's son. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. Jesus is not only proclaiming a new faith, he's not only proclaiming an exclusive faith, he's also proclaiming an authoritative faith. And prior to giving these two short parables, Jesus answered the people's question about fasting with a question. You've got to love it when Jesus does that, right? I mean, in verse 19 he asks, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the obvious answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. A wedding is a time for celebrating, not for mourning. It is a time for feasting, not for fasting. So remember that, engaged couples. Jesus says that if he's coming to your wedding, he expects to eat. Just kidding. Thanks, Chad. Word of warning. It was going to come up in premarital counseling anyway. (laughs) But I think that there's more here than just in an illustrative rhetorical question, okay? I think Jesus is doing more than just posing a, a, a clever little antidote for us. There's something significant about this wedding imagery, this, this bridegroom imagery. In the Old Testament, who is referred to as the husband or bridegroom of the bride Israel? God is. Every time the Old Testament speaks of this wedding imagery, this husband, this bridegroom imagery, in reference to the faith of the people of God, God is always the bridegroom. Always. But here, in this illustration, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. And from this point on, throughout the New Testament, every time this bridegroom husband imagery is used in reference to God's people, again, still being the bride. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Jesus Jesus is the bridegroom. And I think what we see here is a claim to Jesus' own divinity, his own deity. Jesus, in a small, subtle way, is saying that I am God. I'm God's son with all the authority. And we see that in Revelation 19.7, when he says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This passage, however subtly, is a reference to Christ's deity. The bridegroom is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has all authority of God, the one who sits on the heavenly throne and says, Behold, I make all things new. He has the authority to cause the old to pass away and to bring about new things. And that's exactly what he's claiming here. He's saying that the new cloth will tear the old. He's saying the new wine will destroy the old wineskins. They will burst. They will tear. They will be done away with. The new makes the old obsolete. And this is the argument throughout the book of Hebrews. You guys in Jim's community group, you ought to know this. You ought to know that, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews, right? Yeah? And they're, un, they're facing persecution, right? And, and they don't know what to do. And so they're thinking, you know what? Maybe we're getting it wrong. 
Maybe, maybe it's Jesus, but maybe we need to go back to the old Judaism that we were practicing. And so they were trying to incorporate both of them in. They were trying to do Jesus and, right? And that's what they were doing. And so the writer of Hebrews says, you guys are silly because that's ridiculous. Jesus is greater than all these things. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses and the prophets. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the covenants. He's greater than the sacrifice. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the old covenant. In all things, Jesus is greater. He is supreme. He... He's making the old obsolete. Those things don't matter anymore. Why are you going back to the old things when there's Christ? All Old Testament forms and practices are fulfilled in Christ. He fulfills them. It's not like he just says, you don't need that anymore. No, he's the answer to that. They point to our need of him. And so why would we go back? Why would we live by our own works? Jesus is greater than these old forms. But there's one more reason why we see from this text that Jesus has the authority, and it's found in verse 20. It says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. I mean, this imagery here is of a, of a groom that is forcibly led away from his wedding. It's like us coming in and just, you know, Quinn's up there getting ready to say I do, and, and you guys just kind of like blast him from the side and drag him out of there. I mean, that's how bad it is. That's what it's like. And it's pointing to, towards Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. This is actually Jesus' first prediction of his own death. And even here, even now, early in his ministry, Jesus knew the result of the opposition that was arising against him. He knew the direction that this crowd was heading in when they were questioning him about fasting. He knew where it would lead. It would lead to the cross. He would be taken away. He said in that day they will fast. It's not that that fasting is done away with altogether, right? Right? That's not what he's trying to get at. It's not that the old form in itself is bad, but it is incomplete and you're doing it for the wrong reasons. I mean, we know that it's not gone because we see it happen in Acts. Fasting still continues. Fasting is not the issue. The issue is the heart behind it. Because the people were using that religious ritual as a means to try to buy God and to earn their own salvation rather than a means of expressing their dependence upon God. They weren't trusting in Jesus. But in his saying that he will be taken away, we find the other reason why Jesus has the authority to change the status quo. In his being taken away, Jesus purchased the authority over all our religious efforts by his death, resurrection, and ascension. He has the right, he has the power, he has the authority because he died for it. So when you think about your faith, when you think about your religious practice, are you trying to fit Jesus into your pattern of religion? Or are you submitting to his authority? Whose way is it? Is it your way or is it his way? Are you trying to fit him into your box? Are you trying to, to fit him into your mold? Or are you willing to be changed by him? Are you being changed by him? Is he the authority over your life? Or are you trying to be an authority over him? 
either through some sort of false religion or legalism or by continuing to live in your sin. He is the authoritative Son of God who is greater than all things. He has right over your life and your faith because of who He is. And He has right over your life and your faith because He died for it. And in His sacrifice, we see the fourth distinction between the faith Jesus proclaims and that of His audience. Jesus is preaching a joyful faith. A joyful faith. Christianity is unlike every other religion in the world. It is a joyful faith because it's not centered on what you do, but on what Jesus has already accomplished for you. You see that? It's not about you earning your way to God. It's not about you trying to stay in God's good graces. That cannot change. Jesus has done that. When God looks on you, you will never be more righteous than you are right now at this point because Jesus will never be more righteous than He has always been. It's not about you. It's about Him. When God looks at you, Jamie, He sees Jesus. When God looks at you, Mike, He sees Jesus. And when God looks at you, Lonnie, if your faith is in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then He sees Jesus. It's that simple. And it changes everything. So all our efforts, all our good works, all our obedience, all our worship, whatever it is, is not a way to, for us to gain God. It's not a way for us to stay in God's good graces, but a way for us to celebrate what God has done. This is a joyful faith. And I wonder how many of us were singing with joy just a little while ago. I found myself having to pray about my heart. And then I was caught up in all the wrong things. And I wasn't singing my heart out to God. Why is that? Why is that? Um, a few months ago, I, I wrote a review on a book called Spiritual Warfare and Missions by Jerry Rankin and Ed Stetzer. And there was this quote in it that struck me. He was talking about a pastor who was working with some missionaries in Cambodia. And they had the opportunity to go and visit uh, some Buddhist monks. And they began to just live among, alongside them, to fellowship with them, to share their faith. They, they shared the gospel. And, and as they were sitting together at a meal, they, uh, the Christians began to sing songs that, like they would have sang in church on Sunday mornings. Songs of praise. Songs that, that just uh, worship God for, for mercy and redemption in Christ. And then somebody turned to the, the monks and they said, why don't you sing? And so this is where the quote picks up. The group of saffron-robed monks with shaved heads gathered and began a dissonant chant, apparently realizing how they sounded and it bearing no resemblance to the songs they just heard. The chant faded out after a few lines. And one of them said, somewhat apologetic, we don't have any songs in our religion. Those who have not experienced the love and mercy of God have nothing to sing about. Buddhists striving for their eternal destiny through the futility of their own good works do not sing about the wonder and grace of redemptive love. 
Millions of Muslims, fervent in their devotion, worship a distant, impersonal God in a fatalistic religion that offers no assurance of salvation. Fear is not something that elicits songs of joy. Multitudes in animistic cultures, living in bondage to superstition, do not celebrate their hopeless state with song. But God's people sing. God's people sing. Even more, God's desire is that all nations would rejoice and sing for joy. A joy that comes in knowing Him and experiencing His mercy and redemption. Guys, this is what sets us apart from every other religion. Because our redemption has been purchased by the blood of Christ. God's mercy is free. God's mercy is available. You do not have to buy it. You do not have to earn it. It is yours freely by faith in Jesus Christ. That's reason to praise God. Our songs should sound different. We should sing our hearts out in joy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were still dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that at the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. The reason Christianity is a joyous faith rather than a lamenting faith is because it has nothing to do with what we do and everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done. It's not about earning your way to God. It's not about trying to stay in His grace. It is resting in the fact that Jesus has already lived a perfect life and exchanged His perfect righteousness for your sin. Never forget that. And when you recognize that, when you recognize that right now, when Jesus looks, or when God looks at you, He sees Jesus, you can rejoice. You can rejoice. Jesus says that His disciples can't fast because they are with the bridegroom. They are with Him. It is a time for feasting, not for fasting. A time for joy and not for mourning. We have joy because we are with Christ. He is ever in our presence. We have joy because Jesus didn't come to change the means we need to use to get to God. He comes to change men and women like you and me. We have joy because Jesus did not establish a new form of religion, but a new life that which He works powerfully and effectively and completely in you. Completely. Even our fasting looks different today because we have hope in what Christ has done. Not what we do. We fast to display our hunger for Christ We worship through fasting to say that my life is not sustained by bread. The satisfaction of my soul, my spirit's true nourishment is in Jesus Christ. It's not in the things of this world. 
And, and fasting is not a way for me to purify myself. It's a way for me to praise God for Christ. We fast in order to feast on Christ. That is why we fast. And that looks completely different. So friends, rejoice. Jesus Christ is with you. If you are a believer and you have received the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ's Spirit dwells within you. You are always in the presence of the bridegroom. He is always here. He is right here, right now. You are not alone. It's not up to you. You don't have to earn your way to God. Rejoice in this. Rejoice in what God and Christ has done for you. Rejoice that your growth in holiness is not dependent upon your work, but in the ever-present powerful grace of God that He works powerfully in you. Rejoice, because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. New things have come. But Jesus is making all things new. This is the new, exclusive, authoritative, joyful faith in Christ. The only, true, absolute, pleasing way to God. So let all mortal and kindred go. Turn away from your old life and find new life in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have not left us in our sin, our sin of of hungering after the things of the world and, and our sin of, of self-righteousness, of legalism, of trying to earn our way to you. God, we know we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Oh, we thank you that it is complete. So when Christ said it is finished, he meant it. That we can trust Paul when he says that, that we will be brought to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has already done. So Lord, we thank you. God, I pray that that would not leave our hearts, our minds, that, that we would find in the truth of the gospel a daily, a moment-by-moment, moment, newfound, powerful grace to walk in so that we will want new things, we will desire new things, that we will be changed, that we will be new people, having new life in Christ. God, I, I pray that our eyes would be open to the ways that we fail to to recognize this. And those, those old patterns, those old habits, those old traditions, those old, old things that we hang on to, may we let them go. Seek new life in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.